This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Benedict Allen is an explorer. He is an author of a number of books that have been based on his different adventures. He's presented a number of BBC series as well. One of them was Birds of Paradise, The Ultimate Quest. Another one was called Traveler's Century. Uh, he is going to be in Dubai, as we've mentioned, for the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. He's got sessions on February the 4th and 5th. If you are interested after hearing this, you can check it out. And as we discussed before, his style of exploration, because Rob, you asked, what does it mean to be a modern day explorer? Does that even have meaning? And I think he's asked that question quite a lot. The way that he approaches it is first to embed himself with the local indigenous people of a certain unexplored area or, you know, a lesser explored area, let's say, where he will learn the tools to survive. And then he'll set off on a solo journey through places that might include the Amazon rainforest, the Gobi Desert, the Arctic as well. And he doesn't take backup with him. So he doesn't take a GPS tracker. He doesn't take a phone. So there's no sort of emergency exit when he goes. His, his theory is he's got to be all in. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm. Right. Um, he did make international headlines in 2018 for needing to be rescued. We will come back to that story uh, in the future. But for now, I want to get an idea of how the notion of became, becoming a modern day explorer all started for him. You know, as a little boy, I want to be an explorer and maybe all children do, perhaps, or <laughs> not not all of them, maybe. But uh, for me, anyway, I was just one of those really curious children. My dad was a test pilot, and I remember him testing this extraordinary aircraft, the, the Vulcan bomber, and he'd fly it over the back garden testing this aircraft. And I thought, wow, maybe I too can be some sort of pioneer. I can go to exciting places uh, like my dad, fly off, test his aircraft somewhere. And I sort of held on to this dream, even in this, the modern era when everyone said oh there's no such thing as an explorer anymore you know time for exploration is done uh, but i clung on to this dream and um it, it was seemed possible to me just because of my dad and i did that we didn't have any money particularly but i worked in a warehouse and i got myself to the first the place i dreamt of ever since a little boy and uh, that was the amazon uh but because i didn't have any money it meant i had to turn to the local people the indigenous people and that became how I did my journeys, simply because I didn't have any money. It was a sort of financial solution for me. I thought I, if the local people, indigenous people, see this place as a home, which they did, and it, the forest wasn't a threat to them. It wasn't a place of piranhas and snakes and scorpions and the terrible things that we think of. It was a place that gave them their food and their medicine and their shelter. So off I went and I was very, very vulnerable, very, very naive. Uh, but I think the various tribal people, indigenous people, they felt sorry for me, I think. They recognised I was there to try and learn. And they treated me very much like a child. I was 22 by this stage, but I was sort of dumped with the children, the, the local children. And they took pride in teaching me stuff. And I began to realise the skills just these little 10-year-old boys and girls knew what I had to learn, first of all, was to be humble. And uh, that's what I did. I set about my first expedition across the north of the Amazon. It, it only just worked, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> I, I ended up with two sorts of malaria, staggered out of the forest. But I think I realised that I, I had it right, for me anyway, that what I should do is go alone and that way sink into various cultures and learn the local way of doing things. He hasn't altogether convinced me there that forests are not to be feared. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's just... 
And if you aren't altogether convinced yet, this is going to just dissuade you a little further yeah. from that notion because he said he staggered out of the forest. I mean, that was putting it mildly, I think it's fair to say. I wanted to find out what transpired on that journey. He really did have, in his very first expedition, a crash course in the difficulty of survival. What happened, as, as best I remember it, is I was attacked by two gold miners. And this bit was very clear in my mind. I was getting towards the end of the expedition, still about 100 miles maybe from the outside world, but getting towards the end, I thought, wow, I pulled it off. I'm 22, but I managed to cross the north of the Amazon basin. And how amazing. Thanks to the local people. But now I found myself with these two gold miners who, for reasons I don't really understand, essentially I woke up in the night and found them crawling towards me with knives and they were going to kill me. Either they thought I'd robbed them of gold or they're just scared that I'd tell the outside world that they had gold. But I found that they were after me and I ran from my hammock, uh, ran down to the water's edge, jumped into my canoe with my dog, paddled off into the night, canoe capsized, I lost everything and found myself on a riverbank uh, facing a, a nightmare, really. I'd I had to walk to the outside world and I began walking day after day and I got one sort of malaria then I got another sort of malaria and I was essentially starving to death looking back it's what gave me my desire to keep on going expedition after expedition year after year to try and to come to terms with why I didn't die that day um, and perhaps to try and come to terms with the forest this place that was so so much of a nightmare to me as I scrambled walking on and on through the darkness, pushing aside the, the the thorns and so on, scrambling through the mud, desperate just to, to live. Yeah, it is incredible to go through something like that and then still decide to have further explorations. I tell you what, it is a fascinating story. Um, but it is part of the story, of course, because we are speaking about Benedict Allen, who is a modern day explorer. He's also a writer um, and he's presented a lot of his different experiences as well. We we're talking about his very first expedition when he was 22 years old in the Amazon. It was a difficult journey, to say the least, but it led him on to his next experience. This was trekking through remote areas of Papua New Guinea. Now, once again, this was with the help of tribal communities. He had figured out that formula and it ended with him participating in an initiation ceremony of the Niara community. He was the very first outsider to be allowed to take part in this. And I'm not sure how he was feeling just a couple days into it. He must have been questioning this life decision because the test that he was to go through was to become as strong as a crocodile. Okay. So with the lo young local men, Benedict and Toe as well, they're going through their traditional rite of passage into adulthood, into becoming a man. And they were locked in a so-called crocodile's nest for six weeks where they endured regular beatings. And I asked him what he learned from it all and if he was ever tempted to just get up and leave. The thing is, no one knew quite what was going to happen inside the crocodile nest, this big fenced off area. I was, I had my head shaven, as did the other the people who I now knew a little bit, the other young men. But it has to be said that I suppose I, I I felt enormous pride in the fact that I had been allowed to take part in this ceremony. The elders had never allowed any outsiders to go through the ceremony, not even other New Guineans. Uh, and to be allowed to see this ceremony, to witness it and record it for the future uh, was a great privilege. And... 
well, I ought to mention the first day, we weren't just beaten. We were cut repeatedly with bamboo blades. We were given permanent initiation marks, scars that represented the crocodile, in fact, rather like a crocodile skin, hundreds and hundreds of little bumps up and down our chest and back resulted from, from these repeated cuts we were given. I mean, that was a nightmare. We lost perhaps a pint of blood, I suppose, two litres of blood each. You couldn't even stand up after this repeated cutting of these bamboo blades. So that was bad. I mean, the <laughs> first day. Um, then we had to earn these marks, these crocodile marks. But all of this was, as I say, it was something that no outsider had been allowed before, and however brutal the ceremony was. Uh, the ceremony is also about learning to look to each other, and that that was a very, very powerful thing that I didn't. I knew I didn't belong there. You know, I come from London, and um, but the ceremony is all about forgetting yourselves and all about working together, looking for what you have in common. It's a great lesson in life, I should say, but uh, for me, in this particular situation the lesson was you look to each other for solutions because that's the, that's what the ceremony is all about and when you've done that when you've learned to look to each other and learned to be brave and strong and work as a group then you'll be allowed out of the ceremony because in the end no one can do it alone in your if you're living in the swamps of new guinea the forests of new guinea it's a tough tough place you've got to work together so that's what the lesson of the ceremony was all about and after a day or two, I began feeling I've, I've got to do my best for the local people because they're all doing their best for me. You know what? The privilege of becoming the first Westerner to do that, that, that wouldn't be enough for me. <laughs> I'd need a bit more than that. You don't want to be getting I'd your need... crocodile bumps? No, uh, that, I wouldn't be just sitting there being lashed with bamboo thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm the first Westerner to be able to do this. This is rather wonderful, isn't it? This is fantastic. <laughs> Bring on day two. No, I would not. I'd be straight out of there. But, you know, if everybody else is doing it, ultimately you can do it too. But why are they doing it? Well, it's absolutely nonsensical. Well, it's just brutality for brutality's sake. But is it? It's part of their tribal survival. As I said, it's a tough world out there. So they learn this lesson early on as young men or turning into young men so that then they're prepared for their future of quite a difficult environment to live in, in this yeah. tribal. That's that's kind of idea about it. He said what they would do is they would march together. They'd sing happy songs together and beat drums all the while the elders would whack them with sticks. Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> they reached some but, drums. <laughs> but after about six weeks or so, after they had shown their bravery, after they shown that they would look after the weak, you know, that they would take care of each other, once they had proven that, then they were let out because that meant they were prepared, basically. Mm. To take care did of the rest need of the to community. Go on for six weeks. I mean, was it uh, five and a half weeks? Were they still? Did they still have loads to learn? <laughs> I mean, was that just an additional? I reckon they were kept in there probably two weeks longer than they needed to be, just because everyone else was enjoying it. Yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe they're like, "Hey, I had to go through this too, so now yeah, you need exactly to pay." Exactly that. Exactly that. That's it. A lot of this was unnecessary infliction of cruelty and <laughs> probably. injury. Probably. Probably. He went through it nonetheless, and he wow. said that he experienced a real joy, a satisfaction once it had been completed, that they had been seen as worthwhile to the elders. Um, they were also, he says, the way that they were set free is that they were led to water. He said like mother crocodiles would take their young to water to set them free, pushed out to give their freedom. He said they did the same thing. So the crocodile Brilliant. metaphor stayed true to even the end. So I survived the bamboo caning and then I died by drowning. Brilliant. <laughs> It would be ironic if a crocodile did nab one of them oh, on the gosh. bank. <laughs> I thought that's where we were going to go next, given Bye. the nature of this interview so far. <laughs> anyway, I was my colleague. Whoosh! He was gone within a second. Oh, Just we're not, a few bubbles. We're not even close to done. Let's let's move on to another one of his adventures. So 
You know, he said during his expeditions, as we've heard, he's come close to death many times. Another one of those times was back in the Amazon, about a decade later than his first journey. He was crossing the Amazon basin at its widest point. So this was a journey that took more than seven months. It's one that he says was his most technically difficult. Uh, And there was a little extra challenge in this particular journey because unbeknownst to him, Pablo Escobar happened to be hiding out not too far away. Pablo Escobar was being hunted down at this stage. It was about, I think, six months before he was finally killed up in Medellin, his headquarters up up in the highlands. But at this stage, he was trying to keep a low profile and had, had ducked down to a place that was quite near the border between Brazil, Peru and Colombia. But this particular bit on the river Putumayo, uh, th- there was a huge amount of cocaine business going on. And it was a sort of... Uh, cottage industry. I mean, everyone seemed to be involved. The people in Peru were growing the coca, the leaves, and they were taking it by canoe across the other river side to Colombia, and there it was being processed in laboratories deep in the forest. So this was all going on. I was just trying to keep my head down, ignore it all. Um, and then there was this camp ahead, and uh, people were saying, look, just you don't want to know. Don't ask any questions. I didn't realise Pablo Escobar himself was there till a little bit later when the American embassy wanted to interview me about the whole thing. <laughs> but uh, I was just someone who was very much an outsider and he must have seen me as a threat. Um, it, 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 you know, If in doubt, just get rid of the problem. And I was seen as a problem. And so there was I, and basically an explorer in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was paddling my canoe and the two people launched out in their boat behind me. And the man in the front began shooting me and he was shooting with a rifle as opposed to a shotgun. Shotgun's what's normally used in the Amazon for hunting, uh, not a rifle. Um, and so I knew these were outsiders, and I also knew they couldn't canoe very well. Uh, <laughs> so it was another sign that they weren't local people. Uh, essentially, the man in the front couldn't paddle a canoe and shoot someone at the same time, and that's how I got away with it. Every time he picked up the rifle, he fired off about six rounds, six shots, and I remember these bullets going... Phew! past my head you can feel the pressure waves of these bullets i mean very near uh and i was just thinking i've got moments to live but i paddled and paddled and paddled and these bullets kept on going by my head and i got away with that got round the river bend simply because they weren't good at paddling uh, and shooting at the same time <laughs> but it's one of those moments that stick with you tricky things to multitask <laughs> Paddling a canoe and reeling off accurate shots simultaneously. Trying to kill somebody else who's also in a canoe ahead yeah. of you. Yeah. <laughs> canoe shoot 'em ups are just generally destined for failure. Can you imagine how slow that would be as well? <laughs> it's like an episode of hot a shots. Slow canoe yeah. chase. Yeah. You go like this, and then suddenly <laughs> it's great. <laughs> That must have been vaguely comical, actually. I'm, I'm sure in hindsight. Bet, as he put I'm his sure oars with years down, of hindsight, yeah. As he put his oars down. He, the canoe would start spinning, wouldn't it? And he'd be like all over the place trying to get his shot. I mean, that to... makes sense as to why he wasn't able to hit Benedict. But yeah. That is amazing. Chased by Pablo Escobar's people. Well, that is crazy. I like how he just, <laughs> just completely <laughs> trivialised Pablo's predicament as well. <laughs> only, a, only a guy from Britain would describe Pablo as being in a spot of, a a spot spot of, of hot water. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> Just before they all went down in Medellin, I believe. <laughs> well, these experiences, as we've kind of heard, he kind of doesn't necessarily overly romanticize them. It sounds like something maybe somebody once would want to tick off an adventure off their list and then never do it again after experiencing something like this. It sounds absolutely miserable. And yet, throughout his whole life, he's kept coming back for more. Why? Things have changed. When I was a little boy, it was all about romanticism perhaps exoticism i was so excited by the world as as children are and i just thought the world was a wonderful place i suppose i thought somewhere like the amazon was just exciting and it was exciting and uh there was this romantic element to it i think because i liked the idea of living with people who could just hunt with bows and arrows and spears and so on um but uh, yeah, I think I was driven by excitement and curiosity. But gradually, as I got older, I think I felt I had more and more of a duty to record my experience because I could see that a lot of the societies I was living with in remote places like in the heart of New Guinea and the Amazon, Borneo, wherever, these places were disappearing and the cultures were disappearing. And I realised there was actually a value to what I was doing and that I should go back home and report about my experiences and talk to children about the value of various other people's lives. And I should document all I could and and keep on going. I think, though, it requires extraordinary motivation, a sort of personal commitment. I, I, I've never known where my continuing curiosity has come from. But I think I'm I'm one of those, perhaps I'm a rather childish person, but I, I think I am someone who's endlessly fascinated by the world. I like to think I'm endlessly fascinated by the world, but if I'd done the Amazon once, mm. I would not need to go back. Yeah, listen, I don't understand that man's lifestyle choices at all <laughs> in the slightest, but that was engrossing. Let's move on to a story of his, though, that made him the subject of a number of international headlines back in 2018. A British explorer who went missing on an expedition to a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea has now been found and evacuated by helicopter. Let's start with the first place. At the tail end of 2017, he decided to go back to Papua New Guinea. But why? What had happened was I was simply going back to people I had loved, really. Uh, people called the Yaifo, very, very remote people up in the highlands, central highlands of Papua New Guinea. And I'd seen them as a very young man. I'd come across them during this big, uh, I suppose gold rush. The gold rush had swept through the heart of New Guinea and these people were hiding from it. And I had gone as a very naive young explorer trying to record their life before it was swept away by this terrible gold rush. And they had done a wonderful thing for me. I was the first outsider they had seen. And they, there was one particular man called Corsai who had led me to safety over the mountaintop, over the central range, there's an extraordinary act of bravery and kindness by this, a very gentle man called Sai. He picked up his bows and arrows and led me, uh, and he had hardly any clothing. He was very, very exposed to the cold of, of this mountain ridge. But he did this wonderful act, leading me to safety, to the outside world. So I went back to find what had happened to the IFO. 30 years later, just, uh, just a few years ago now, went back, and there was Corsai. It had this wonderful reunion. We hugged each other, and um, it was a great, great moment. So I found the Corsai, found the Yifo still living on the in the mountains, and I felt so thankful for that and carried on 
to safety over the mountain ridge, just like the last time. But this time, I found myself com confronted by two warring factions, other groups of people who are fighting it out in the forest. And I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out of uh, to the outside world. All this fighting was going on, people with homemade weapons. The gold rush that I mentioned had really taken hold now. And people, people just battling it out. There was this idea that gold was to be found everywhere and essentially it caused a huge amount of social discontent. As I say, people using homemade weapons, firing at each other, using bows, axes, whatever they could to battle it out. And um, it was too dangerous for me to get out. So there he is. He finds himself stuck. He says he's at an abandoned mission station. The missionaries had fled because of the fighting before. Now, this happened tail end of 2017. Things kind of started to go wrong very quickly. The you know environment was overtaken by a gold rush. You've got warring tribes. He finds himself stuck, hiding out in an abandoned mission station and just sick as well. Yeah. And trying Guy to can't catch a break, essentially. <laughs> exactly. Um, and he ends up trying to figure out how to get a word by his agent out there as a call for help. And uh, finally, after, uh, I suppose, 10 days or so, a helicopter appeared. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> it turned out to not, not to be local missionaries who are flying in to, to get me out, but uh, the Daily Mail newspaper. And they had sent someone all the way from England, the, the chief reporter, to get me out, uh, which, which was, and I was really grateful for that. But um, unknown to me, this has become a huge story that uh, in the manner of there was a Scottish explorer, Dr. Livingston, he had been rescued by H.M. Stanley, famously. There was this phrase in Dr. Livingston, I presume. Stanley, the reporter, got all the way into the heart of Africa. And this was uh, like a uh, repeat of history in a way, that here was I, a modern-day explorer, being rescued by the newspaper. But I think this, this, story, this story just caught people's imagination, that he was a someone who calls himself an explorer, even in the 21st century. You know, this man is left over from the Victorian era, but reality is that there is a, still a world to be explored, and I call myself an explorer because I feel I'm a professional whose job it is to do that. But I think this is what gripped people's imagination that even nowadays someone could totally disappear uh, and be someone like the old days, someone who's still exploring the world. There's something sort of romantic about it, I think. And yet he caught a fair bit of heat for this. Some people had assumed he had taken a phone with him, which he doesn't do in general. So he was criticized for that kind of how could you not in this day and age do that for your safety and protection? Now, for him, he said it was the YIFO that he wanted to trust. And, you know, it was a young man who managed to make his way out of that fighting zone and communicate with his agent about where Benedict actually was. And he said, you know, the local missionaries do sometimes send a small plane to get somebody out if they need to. That's kind of a practice that they have. But he was certainly not expecting the arrival of a helicopter courtesy of the Daily Mail. That was definitely a bit of a shock to him. But there are other reasons why this story was quite polarizing. But uh, there was another criticism, which was this, you know, that I'm some sort of imperialist. I'm another white male in there. And I mentioned earlier, there was this tradition of imperialism in in exploration, that it's been traders or uh, imperialists of one sort or another from Europe who've, who've explored the world, hoping to sort of dominate it or conquer it, perhaps. Um, 
but it's very much not what I'm about. For me, it's all about listening and learning. And that is, in fact, the reason why I didn't take a phone or GPS, because it's about being humble and and uh, living with the consequences of, of how the locals do things. So, yeah, I was attacked by the left for being, for being an imperialist, because I hadn't looked at how I do my expeditions, and from other people for being a champion of uh, Britishness. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Every, everyone had their own angle. Um, but the sad thing was... It wasn't about anyone else. It was just about a, a journey back to a wonderful man called Corsai. And um, so I was sort of saddened by the whole thing. It became everyone else's agenda. It wasn't about what the journey was about, which was simply uh, one person wanted to shake hands with a great man called Corsai, who'd been so good to me as a young man. I was kind of in two minds about this story, because on the one hand, I understand what he's saying. You know, he wants to respect the local people and he wants to kind of go out on his own. But ultimately, when things became tough, he had a red button that he could push. Mm. He had an agent that he could communicate with. He had somebody that was willing to send a helicopter for him. Whereas, you know, who knows what would have happened if he was just one of the local people and actually did see it through to the end, right? Um, He is somebody who, in his own words, is said to have almost died nine times. That's what they say about him, uh, according to him. This was, of course, one of those instances. And, of course, last time that we heard from Benedict, he told us about being shot at while canoeing in the Amazon. So what does it feel like to think, you know, be in that moment of, Oh, this has got to be it. This is it. How oh, do I Lord. get myself out of this situation? Of course, it's different every time because yeah. you're being shot at. You're carried through by adrenaline. You're not really having time to think. But there was another time also in the Amazon where he was robbed by the very loggers who were kind of helping him through. They were helping him carry his stuff through, helping to sort of guide him through. But eventually, at some point, they Turn kind of on. took his stuff, took it across in a canoe and just left him. So they kind of essentially left him to die with nothing in the middle of the Amazon. So he said, when you're in that situation, the the fact that you have children adds a lot of weight because you think I must get out. There's almost no choice. He said you could use that as a burden or you could use that as something to really fuel the fact that you must get out. And he said the thing to do in that case is really build yourself up and take control of the situation. In my survival kit, I have a little bit of paper that has, it's got a list of nine things that just remind me of, what I've got to do in these situations, because the, the problem is you lose a sense of uh, of what appropriate actions are. It's very easy to panic when you've been... Essentially, these the loggers who'd left me to die, they were saying, in effect, your life isn't worth it. You know, we've just... Yeah, we've helped you up till now, carrying your bags. But actually, well, you're useless. You know, we, don't, we can get away with this. It's a sort of way of saying, you know, the message you take from it is that you're, you're you're no good so you've got to build yourself up again and i remember looking at this bit of paper i had in my survival kit you know along with my fishing hooks fishing line all the little things compass so on that i keep in a little pack around my waist i don't look at this bit of paper and it would say things like uh, the importance of working together or the importance of being ruthless when necessary or they're just, just little pointers that help you think rationally um and you sort of Build yourself up. I think one of the key pointers on that little bit of paper that I used on that occasion was ad- adapt to changing circumstances. So you ch- your circumstances have changed, and then you look at the, another pointer that says the resources are all around you, everywhere there's a resource. And um, those two things helped build up in my mind the idea that, yes, um, things have changed. No, no good growing over spilled milk. But uh, there are things around me that can help me. 
Because in the rainforest, you feel totally helpless. You're surrounded by some of the, the smartest creatures in a way that you can possibly imagine. These creatures that have evolved over 80 million years, you know, the best of their kind. It's a highly competitive world of insects and snakes and spiders and frogs and so on. And you feel really useless um, if your own species have decided to rob you <laughs> and leave you to die. So you've got to start believing that, yes, this is a amazing place that could be full of enemies or it could be full of, full of allies and you start uh, looking at those allies the leaves that you can use for shelter the fish that you might be able to eat and so on you gradually start thinking of that place as a home as, as an opportunity it's 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 never yeah as i say it's never easy um and i suppose i don't allow myself to dwell on these moments i just think to myself well life is out there to grab and yes there are risks and it's a question of trying to to mitigate those risks um, and make the most of what is out there in the world. How long do we last in the Amazon if we're left to our own devices? Uh, I think you last about oh, 30 seconds longer than I do and Robbie lasts uh, probably an hour longer than I both don't know. of us. I give, Robbie, I give Robbie about like three days on the two of us. I mean, cheapers. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I would just curl up in a ball. <laughs> I would. I'm sure, I, listen, I'm sure that kind of, the energy, the adrenaline kicks yeah. in, that kind of... You just got to get going. You got to get going. You would start but, making plans. You'd start speaking a lot and expend a lot of energy with hand gesticulations is what you would do. probably just start speaking out loud uh, and then animals would find me and then I'd be... <laughs> you make too much noise. Draw too, too much attention to yourself. You'd see a spider and then it'd be uh, all no, over it. from there. Yeah. Would you ever give up modern life? No, no, so no. Really? You know me well enough to know that that is my idea of hell. I need to be in and around people, need to be close to a television to watch my sport, <laughs> need to be able to get to sport. No, as sad as it may sound, and it's each to their own, I don't like wilderness, I don't like being lonely, I like being surrounded by people like yourselves. Well, oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you. You know, we talked about how he's obviously spent quite a lot of time with indigenous people and tribes around the world. But of course, there he was Zooming with me from Prague. So, you know, it's very much different ways of life that he's experienced. And I asked him how he reflects on that. Are we missing something in the way that we live by perpetually being connected online, by the sort of pace of life yeah. that we've chosen? It is very different. And I do think we are missing things. It, there's a danger of being too romantic about it and thinking, wow, these people are uh, at one with nature and, hey, how amazing and uh, everything. But uh, there's a certain togetherness, which I do miss. I, I find around me in, what do you call us, the industrial world, the, the postmodern world, you know, living our modern lives, there are a lot of people that are lonely. I think it's especially older people, but even younger people, a lot of people, feel confused they feel they're not part of the society they wonder what it all means uh living in one of these more traditional societies no one's ever left out there's i've never come across lonely people i've never come across people who are really particularly mentally ill even yes there are people with various conditions uh mental conditions but there isn't that i, th I think <sighs> There's such a connectedness that the people who feel themselves slightly outcast or depressed um, always feel themselves drawn back in again to the community. So there's a wonderful togetherness, which I think uh, we are missing in our societies. 
You know, another thing that really fascinated me about Benedict's story, and this is not just about Benedict. I had the same feeling when I was speaking to Nicola Green, the artist. People that have chosen some sort of alternative life in terms of what they're doing Brave. for their actual career. Yeah. I think what's different between these people who are able to pick this lifestyle that follow their passion as opposed to so many people who may have certain dreams, but essentially are choosing financial stability as their yeah. priority. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. would you be, I mean, I guess you wouldn't necessarily be doing something different if no, you weren't I'm, worried about financial stability. I mean, kind of, I mean, I'd probably be on the golf course a lot more than I currently <laughs> yeah. am, but yeah, I've always been, you know, again, my upbringing zones has been, I am wedded to that stability. You right. know, I do suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome and I do have my stresses and strains and anxieties around ensuring that the next paycheck comes in and I've got a roof over my head, but that's me. That's my personality. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a worrier for other people. They like to be free as birds. They don't have the same, you know, worry paycheck to paycheck. They just get on with life and yeah. that kind of, they live by that old adage that, you know, we'll be okay. We will, we'll, we'll get by. We will somehow survive it's that kind of human instinct that kicks in whereas I am an absolute warrior you know I need to be wedded ball and chain to ARN just to get by <laughs> I'm somewhere in between I like I, I like the idea of being free as a bird but deep down I, I have that fear and sometimes of I, where the next I, paycheck I is you coming well from enough. you've railed against it a few times of course and you've kind of gone off for a couple of weeks or whatever and you've tried to, to bring yourself into that world but ultimately the corporate world will bring you it back it does it brings me back so I asked him how was he able to afford this lifestyle when he told us last week he didn't actually have that much money to work with in the beginning yeah I, I have to say the stability isn't there even now I mean I, I don't have sponsors um, I don't I'm not an ambassador for any brand because it, it just sits uncomfortably with me at the idea that my philosophy is all about learning from indigenous people. And if I had a hat, you know, a cap that says, buy, uh, I don't know, I don't know, then maybe, maybe a, you know, banking corporation or a DHL or there could be some brand that I'm trying to advertise, you know, that would all sit quite badly with me. So I, I just, I don't have sponsors um, and finance has always been a little bit tricky. But um, I think for me at the beginning, it was easier in the same strange way. I just had this, this, uh, the, the freedom that comes with being very young and uh, believing that you're, you're immortal. You know, I, I really thought nothing was going to get in my way. I just had this great feeling that the life, life was out there to grab Um and that um, I had to make the most of it. I, I was, I, I lived with my mum and dad till I was twenty six or twenty seven. I mean, they were very kind. They, they didn't charge me rent or anything. And and I worked, went back to the same warehouse, earning money wherever I could. And then, and I, I was quite aware, I suppose, that this was my chance. That once I got older, once I settled down and got a mortgage, maybe or, or had family, it wasn't going to be so easy. So I felt like I also felt my mum and dad would give up slightly. I mean, they were very wonderful in encouraging my dream, but I knew that I sort of had a few years in which to try it out. This idea of being an explorer, and yeah, it wasn't easy, but it, it, it's it it helps hugely knowing what you want to do with your life. Uh, I had this wonderful advantage as a schoolboy, as a child, thinking I'm going to be an explorer. That's what I'm going to do. And if you have an idea of what you want to do, it, it just it makes things so much easier. I didn't know what else I could do, frankly. <laughs> that was my 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 love, you know. And uh, yeah, I just sort of went for it. I was that sort of blinkered 
person, I think. Yeah, and, you know, Chris, you thought, I'm going to be doing something with football. And that's it. I, I did say from a young age, I started young as well. I think I was 14 at the age when I started writing my first football match reports, etc. Mm. I just felt that I'm not good enough to play professional football. I just want to be in and around the sport that I love. And fortunately, fortunately, so and so, I've done that. I've worked hard to get to where I am. A bit of luck along the way as well. But, yeah, I think there's a, a great message in that. I mean, the idea of being a modern day explorer though in 2023 blows my mind a little bit but a great story and of course benedict will be at the emirates lit fest the off script podcast we hope that you enjoyed this episode please do go ahead and click subscribe you can also check out our other podcasts time capsule or the big interview find it wherever you get your podcasts 